Welcome to Business Reporter's Future of Insurance podcast series with CoreLogic. I'm Georgie Frost. Now, the weather is becoming a growing challenge, not only for the insurance industry, but for national economies as a whole. Hurricanes, wildfires, floods and other forms of extreme weather are becoming ever more aggressive and unpredictable. So how can we as an industry take control by understanding those risks, preparing for them and responding accordingly? And how can the technologies and methods that support the insurance sector be deployed on a national level. Well, joining me to discuss this is CoreLogic's chief scientist, Dr. Howard Botts. Howard leads CoreLogic's Science and Analytics Centre of Excellence. He holds a PhD in Geography from the University of Wisconsin and is a recognised expert in natural hazard risk solutions. Howard, a very warm welcome to you. Firstly, anecdotally, we may have noticed the weather being should I say, a bit odd of late uh, in some places, a bit more extreme and unpredictable than in others. But even the the eldest of us all will only have been around for you know, 100 years, drop in the ocean of Earth's time. So tell us, what exactly is happening to the weather with some historical context behind this? You know, what is the science actually telling us? Oh, really interesting question, Georgie. I think if we look historically, uh, obviously there's been huge climatic variability uh, throughout time, given the fact we've had four global uh, ice ages, sea level has fluctuated as much as 400 feet uh, lower uh, as recently as about 12,000 years ago. Uh, so we know we go through you know, uh, periods of extensive uh, uh, climate variability. But I think what makes today more interesting and where uh, to sort of misquote Shakespeare, the past isn't prologue in this case, is that uh, as we continue to add more CO2 and other things into the environment, uh, we're changing weather patterns. And so if you think about for every one degree Celsius, uh, air temperature rises, the air can hold 7% more water. uh, And uh, we've seen that um, temperature rise relatively recently, and it's continuing to go up. So Simple uh, thermodynamics mean more water, more heat, more dynamic atmosphere. You know, we've had uh, a number of record years uh, of uh, hazard losses related to uh, climate. Uh, You know, part of that is just population movement, people moving to more risky space. But the other is, uh, you know, we're just getting more intense storms, increased flooding. Certainly that made the news in Australia. We've seen that this year in the U.S., UK has had many, many recent years of significant flooding that uh, unprecedented based on the past. So while the past informs us in variability, we're seeing increased uh, hazard risk related to uh, increase in temperature, increase in CO2. For those of us without PhDs in science and this area particularly, the link between extreme weather and climate change and the link as well between man and climate change. What are the exact links there? Yeah, well, I think the causality is obviously constantly being debated, but the science tells us that there's a very high correlation between fossil fuel burning and other uh, human events that is speeding along what might be a natural uh, climatic uh, change. And so uh, we've seen close ties to increase CO2 to uh, you know, a speed up in uh, rainfall or drought conditions. 
Uh, we're seeing pattern changes uh, in the jet stream. The uh, uh, you know the the thing that we all curse when we're flying from the UK to the US because it slows us down or going the other direction uh, speeds us up. Uh, that is traditionally uh, kept cold weather locked up in Canada where it belongs or uh, you know uh, not uh, pushing down in, in our case in the US. We saw this winter with a slowdown uh, and a change in the jet stream currents, uh, cold air coming down and causing massive uh, you know, freeze and losses in places like Texas. So I think the connectivity is very much through uh, activities that we're seeing, whether it's burning of forests uh, or uh, obviously increases in transportation on the ocean, uh, cars, uh, virtually every source. Uh, so there, there is the link, and that's why all the concern about trying to uh, maintain some sort of carbon neutral uh, into the future so that we can slow down the uh, increase in temperature. So what you're telling us is it's, it's not just anecdotal. We are noticing <laughs> it, but it is actually happening. Uh, and that actually has an impact, a big impact, on, on this industry. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely right. It is an anecdotal. We can see it uh, in real cases. Uh, in the U.S. context, uh, all you have to do is go to some place like Miami Beach, where we're seeing sea level rise, starting to flood streets, making it look like Venice, Italy at high tide in, in some cases. So cliffs on the Pacific Ocean side uh, receding back at a half a foot or a foot more a year as sea level rises. Uh, be no problem at all if we didn't build in hazardous places, but uh, people love uh, oceanfront property or uh, uh, you know, along rivers, other kinds of uh, aesthetic places. Indeed they do. Um, impact is obvious on the insurance industry, but national and global economies, what's the impact there? Well, I think we're seeing it in a lot of uh, different ways. You know, we had floods in Thailand a few years ago, which impacted all of the hard drive manufacturing. And so supply chain uh, with just-in-time manufacturing has become a significant issue. We have differential approaches to how countries are dealing with the climate change. And so you have countries uh, like India building uh, fencing between them and Bangladesh, which is a very low-lying country and subject to increased number of cyclones and sea level rise. And so uh, on a financial scale, will impact farming, which obviously, uh, you know, we've increased global population uh, significantly uh, through the ability to feed people, uh, which is a major change in the last hundred years. Uh, famine, still an issue, but less of an issue. Uh, all the manufacturing we have that's globally distributed, uh, we've seen a lot of impacts. Uh, uh, related to all the different hazard perils, flooding in particular. Okay, how, tell me about the climate change catastrophe report, if you would. Sure. Uh, CoreLogic uh, is really uniquely positioned to look at hazard risk, particularly in the U.S., although we do it globally. But in the U.S. context, we have uh, information on every structure in the United States, all of the building characteristics, all of the uh, related characteristics uh, that are going to allow us to understand risk at an individual property level. And so we've developed very, very high definition hazard models at the structure level uh, and based really on, you know, how high the first floor is above ground level or other kinds of things uh, which are going to allow us to understand loss uh, in any particular year. 
And so we have a series of hazard models that we run against every property in the U.S., commercial and residential. And we're able to assess what the uh, average annual loss should be at a particular property. And we're able to look at how that's changing uh, with climate change. So we take all of this sort of unique uh, structure level information and then look at an annual set of uh, hazards uh, that impact, uh, in this case, the US for the uh, climate change catastrophe report. So we really look back in the latest version at what happened in 2020, six straight year in which we've seen record breaking uh, losses related to various uh, natural hazard perils, you know, uh, a significant number of uh, uh, you know billion dollar events uh, uh, occurring. So uh, it's really a, our ability to look at weather related uh, uh, losses, look at uh, hazard risk across the United States and talk about climate change, but also our chief economist looks at what's the correlation uh, to the U.S. housing market. And uh, so we're really trying to inform uh, the public on here are all the hazards you should be concerned about. Here's what happened last year. Here's how it correlates to the larger economy. Can I dig into that in a little bit more detail? Just some of the key findings of the report, the main consequences, therefore, for insurers and their customers. Sure. You know, I think if I had to identify several of the top findings, uh, one would be, as I just discussed, uh, you know, every home or commercial property has climate change risk. And we see that in a couple of different ways. One is there's some uninsured perils that uh, are systemic risk. And certainly with the change in administration in Washington, DC, uh, they become major sources of interest. And that would be uninsured flooding, which in the US context are largely properties outside the 100 year flood zone and earthquake risk and uh, where a number of us uh, in the company live in California. We know that only 12% of Californians have earthquake insurance in one of the uh, most active uh, set of fault zones in the country. So we're able then to look at uninsured as well as insured perils. And we've taken all of the major uh, uh, potential areas of loss, whether it's earthquake, wildfire, flood, severe convective storm, which would be hail, tornadoes, straight line winds, a hurricane wind uh, and storm surge, along with a winter storm. And so we're able to look at any individual property and then identify what the frequency and severity of, of loss is gonna be. And so to get to your, uh, the second part of your question about what does this mean for insurers, you know, really a, a couple of uh, major things. One is uh, they can obviously look at their book of business and understand what their potential loss is. Uh, they can also use it to uh, underwrite and price. But uh, more importantly, I think in terms of the public, they're starting to work very closely with mitigation. So how do I reduce my wildfire risk? You know, if I clear vegetation, other kinds of ways. So we're trying to look at uh, in part, how we can increase uh, resilience and support uh, mitigation. Uh, you know, so the, the second uh, thing I guess I would pull out is what I just talked about, you know, the ability to really speak to these at, at a, a very granular 
or high definition level. Um, you know, certainly knowing the risk uh, uh, is, is the biggest part of all, and most people are relatively uninformed about what their potential exposure is to these. So uh, we've also seen the same data used to produce new forms of insurance, an example of which is uh, parametric hail. One of the big expenses for insurers is sending claims representatives out to particular sites. So let's take a, a auto dealership, which has you know, millions of dollars of inventory sitting out in the open. Uh, there's now products uh, that use our uh, weather radar derived products, uh, which we can actually identify where hail fell, the size of the hail and duration of the hail. And so these parametric products then uh, are triggered if hail of a certain size falls on a particular area, they'll just pay the extent of the, uh, the claims for that without sending out an adjuster. The ability today to, to look at micro level and create new forms of insurance uh, is significant. And I guess the last thing would be, we can really look at the impacts of securitized uh, mortgage portfolios or mortgage servicers and others. And with the same information that we have in the, the report, we can actually identify real time when an event occurs, which properties are the most impacted. And those can be used to triage or for a securitized uh, uh, instrument, we can look at what the uh, risk is within that particular uh, portfolio. So those would be some of the highlights, I guess, uh, Georgie, that I'd emphasize. I want to know why CoreLogic is delivering this information and, and a little bit more about the expertise and technology behind it all. Yeah, we have a large number of PhDs that have a wide variety of, of backgrounds, uh, certainly in every imaginable hazard, uh, you know, so we have experts in earthquake or wildfire or uh, hurricanes. But we also have on staff a, a series of PhDs in structural engineering. Uh, since the, uh, you know, if you think about an earthquake, it gets propagated to a site and what the type of building is, uh, age, you know, uh, structural integrity, is it built on piles or uh, uh, down to bedrock? Uh, we take all of those things uh, into account. And then we also have uh, construction engineers that can reconstruct a building from the ground up using uh, information we get on a nightly basis on cost of materials, drywall, two by fours, uh, and a cost of uh, labor. So we're able to marry these together, the hazard science, the engineering piece, and replacement cost. And that then allows us to um, really understand, as I've sort of emphasized multiple times, what's happening at exactly one point on the earth. So uh, we know what happens to my house or a nearby commercial building, and then we can aggregate that up. So. Uh, we're uniquely positioned here at CoreLogic because we support about 70 to 80% of the multiple listing services for real estate, about 70% uh, of the uh, appraisal business. Uh, so we have unique insights as to what's inside particular structures, other kinds of things. So uh, that's what differentiates us uh, in, in many ways from our competitors. How does COVID qualify as a natural hazard from this perspective? That's a, an interesting one. You know, uh, I think there are two that 
we don't typically uh, uh, deal with, uh, at least in our business, one would be cyber, uh, which is obviously a huge one. The other is pandemics. And certainly uh, we've seen the question for insurance, is this covered or an exception? I believe in the UK for business interruption, they have decided that COVID is perhaps a proximate cause of loss. In the US, that's still being litigated. So although we don't tend to uh, look at that particular uh, loss driver, uh, it definitely affects a lot of our clients. And the end result, uh, depending on how it works through in the legal system, is who's going to pay for uh, the year plus long business interruption to restaurants uh, or really any other retailing or commercial structure. Yes, I think that's one for the for the lawyers at the moment. But, uh, <laughs> in terms of the insurance industry, in terms of finance industries generally, are they on board with the climate risk? I mean, we've had recently measures in New Zealand. They've become the world's first country to bring in a law that's forcing financial firms to report on the effects of climate change. Is this needed? Is this the type of action that has to happen for us to take this seriously? You know, we've developed climate change models for a long time in the U.S., but without a regulatory uh, requirement, you're not going to find banks or financial or other institutions adopting these. You know, if they can't somehow pass the cost on to uh, the individual mortgage holders or uh, insurance companies, other things, we've seen really a significant change uh, between the Trump administration and the Biden administration. Our discussions in, in Washington, D.C. Pro- with the prior administration basically came down to, we don't believe climate change exists, therefore we're not going to look at it as a potential hazard. Day one with the Biden administration was essentially an order for all the federal agencies to uh, start looking at this. So we're having detailed discussions uh, with all the major uh, institutions, and ultimately they're going to come up with a series of regulations in which banks will have to Uh, understand if they're issuing a 30-year mortgage, uh, what's the impact of the price of that property uh, over time? Uh, And if it's in an area that uh, is likely to experience more flooding or other kinds of losses, uh, obviously that property may be worth less than it was at the time of inception. So I think we're going to see greater kind of regulation around climate change reporting. Uh, That will be mandated. We have a lot of banks that we're working with, we're talking about, we'd like a climate certificate to be part of uh, the loan structure, much like in the US, they have to get a flood certificate. So we're definitely behind New Zealand, but you know they have slightly less than 5 million people, roughly the population of Alabama, which is the 24th largest state uh, in the US. So uh, uh, they're definitely out ahead of us, requiring that any firm that does more than a billion dollars in New Zealand include information on climate uh, impact. And that really does a couple of things. And I think we're going to see the same thing in the US. It's going to prevent development in very, very risky areas, uh, which would be a positive thing. And it's also going to contribute to resilience, making sure we build in a sustainable way 30 to 50 years from now, we're not going to see that property underwater significantly damaged in, in a variety of ways. Much cheaper to pay for resilience now than mm-hmm. claims later. Insurers will be under pressure to 
continue to write, uh, underwrite and uh, issue insurance policies on properties. But as we've seen in California, where I live, insurers are pulling out of the market because of increased wildfire risk. Uh, we've seen uh, year over year uh, significant losses, which uh, given we're in a mega drought are gonna continue. And so for insurers getting a handle on what their risk is and being able to price it accurately probably is the most important part of that equation of understanding climate risk and increased loss potential. How do they get a handle on it? One example would be, let me just kind of back up a little bit and talk about flood. In the 1960s in the U.S., insurers realized we don't understand uh, uh, potential loss uh, at an individual structure level. And so they abandoned the market and the federal government had to step in in the U.S. and create the National Flood Insurance Program. And now today we're starting to see private insurers move into the market because today, as I've talked about earlier, we can really provide individual structure level risk models. And so now they're returning. Uh, they'll probably always uh, be a market for high risk properties that they won't write, but now uh, there's a lot more opportunity. In the case of wildfire, I was just discussing, they are working with homeowners uh, to mandate certain levels of mitigation, understanding uh, what exactly is occurring on the property. So we can identify not only the type of structure, the likelihood that it's gonna burn, but uh, we can also identify, have they cleared vegetation uh, 10 meters away from the house? Or you know, do they have a wood pile, wood deck, uh, other kinds of things? Do they have fine mesh screens? Most of the uh, losses occur from blowing embers in a wildfire that get inside the, uh, the attic and other places in a home. So understanding the loss profile and what's driving that loss uh, will be one area that insurers can certainly use this data. What's the danger if they don't take on board this data and all this, the climate change report that you've produced and all of these technologies that are being used now by your good selves? What if they don't? Well, I think the danger is uh, the thing they fear most, which is adverse impact, that if their competitors understand where the good risks are and where the bad risks are and price accordingly, those that aren't adopting this kind of uh, uh, information are going to be the ones that have portfolios that are at very, very high risk. Uh, and, you know, I think that's insurance operates at a relatively low margin. And uh, I think most of us that are paying our premiums don't realize that. But uh, so making sure that you've got risk uh, and identified the risk profile uh, that you're comfortable with is critical. I asked at the start, how can the technologies and methods that support the insurance sector be deployed on a national level? I'll ask you that question. Well, I think uh, this catastrophic climate report that we addressed a little bit earlier uh, has a series of, of maps that show uh, what the national level uh, risk profile looks like. And it varies significantly, uh, you know, in the Gulf or Atlantic coastal areas, hurricane drives uh, most of the risk. In California, it's earthquake and wildfire. Uh, and uh, other places, it's winter storm, floods. Uh, one out of every 10 roofs in Kansas and Texas is replaced by an insurance company every year. So at a national level, uh, you know, frequency and severity of events vary significantly, but by incorporating all of this data, insurers can understand what the uh, risk profile is uh, across areas. 
But with literally within a single neighborhood, uh, they can see uh, significant differences house to house in many cases based on micro level changes in elevation or other kinds of things. So, uh, you know, the ability to understand that, manage it, help the, uh, uh, their insured or members, uh, depending on the organization, understand what their risk is and help mitigate against that, I think would be what we'd love to see at a national level. How would, where are we heading? I don't want to get political, but if we'd have gone along the, shall we say, the Trump lines of perhaps not doing a huge amount about climate change, where are we heading with the best science that you have to hand at the moment? What does it tell us? Well, it tells us uh, a, a number of things. We know that uh, even if we all move to uh, the, the same sort of carbon neutral approach that New Zealand's attempting, so by 2050 or so to be a uh, carbon neutral in what they're doing, we're still going to see sea level rise. We're going to see global temperature rising two to three to four degrees Celsius. This temperature, I mean, this century, this temperature increase means, you know, a lot more water falling, a lot higher levels of humidity. We're going to see, I think, retreat from the coasts in many cases. So low-lying uh, areas, and you think about Florida and the U.S. is a, a major area, but much of the Gulf Coast, uh, we're going to see new decisions made and uh, likely uh, the government or some other entity buying up a lot of properties rather than continuing to pay for uh, uh, systemic losses. We're going to see significant, I think, socioeconomic uh, uh, and, and racial adverse impacts where a lot of the low-lying and other areas are typically occupied by, uh, you know, the financially uh, most vulnerable in the U.S. and other parts of the world, and so we're going to have to increasingly look at affordable housing policies, uh, how we can build things in a uh, a resilient uh, way. Uh, there's discussion in Washington D.C. about a new infrastructure package. And if you smartly build your infrastructure in ways like raising highways that could become sort of natural levees to prevent water, uh, you know, I think we're going to see a lot more uh, emphasis on large scale uh, uh, protection, much like uh, in Venice, they built that uh, storm surge barrier. Uh, you know, they're talking about that around New York City. Tokyo, uh, right now we've done studies looking at what's the impact of raising seawalls uh, and making that investment now uh, versus uh, paying claims later. And, uh, you know, it's 10 to 100x uh, savings by spending the money now. So I think we will see uh, on a global sense uh, a, a lot more displacement as we have uh, increased levels of drought uh, or agricultural disruption. It will be very dynamic. Our ability to understand and uh, help mitigate against these changes, I think, will really dictate who does well uh, in the coming century versus who doesn't. Eek, Howard, that sounds all rather bleak. I don't like ending a podcast on a psych downturn. Have you got any good news for me? Something hopeful? Well, uh, you know, I think uh, the hopeful news is we now have uh, the ability to really understand what's driving a lot of this and be able to get out in front of it. And uh, there are a lot of opportunities for businesses and government and others to uh, get out ahead of this. And 
you wouldn't have built New Orleans where you built it today, uh, you know, had you known climate change was happening. So until we started building uh, uh, cities and other things in fixed locations, it probably didn't matter. But now uh, I think we're going to see a lot of industry and focus on climate resilience. You know, I think that's exciting for those of us that work in this space to really understand uh, how we can get ahead of uh, any of these changes. So life is all about change, and this is just one other component. And certainly, you know, it has broader uh, societal implications, perhaps, than many. But uh, I'm hopeful and excited about the future. Much better. Indeed, the only constant in life is change, isn't it? But Howard, thank you so much. For more information about natural hazard risk and response to active events, visit hazardhq.com.